Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that this day is upon us. It is truly a gift from you. And we recognize that there are blessings that await us through this day because we are waiting upon you. We recognize as well, our Heavenly Father, that today will also bring challenges for uh, various individuals, even in this room and even in our church family. And we pray that your grace and your kindness and your mercy will pour out upon them on, in, abundant, in an abundant way. We ask our Father as well that each of us in this room would enjoy the things that we are going to learn about. We pray that as we do touch base on uh, issues and facts that probably many of us are aware of, that there might be new insights that are uh, the result of our study. May our Father this day be a day that enhances our walk with Jesus Christ. And we pray our Father that you would be pleased to mature us in the things of our Lord as we uh, grow in grace and in knowledge of Jesus Christ. For it's in the name of our loving Lord and precious Savior that we pray these things. Amen. We are looking today at uh, number three in our uh, series on the subject of archaeology. And uh, today we're going to touch base on some archaeological issues, but... Uh, by and large, what we're going to be doing is kind of reviewing a lot of things that probably many of you are already aware of. Uh, and so we're looking at the uh, basically the wanderings, and I'm going to just touch base on the wanderings a little bit. And then we're going to look at the strategy whereby Joshua we used uh, through God to conquer the land. And then uh, the primary reason for this is to uh, realize the validity of the biblical numbers in Scripture. And we touched base on that right kind of the, the very end uh, last week. So uh, the route of the Exodus takes them through the Reed Sea or Red Sea, uh, depending on your perspective. It takes us down to Mount Sinai, and then it takes us... Uh, up to the area of uh, Kadesh Barnea, which is up there, and then, and then the wanderings. The uh, interesting thing about the wanderings, so uh, the basic events of the uh, Exodus are uh, the primary Exodus, then they start receiving the manna, and uh, then they get down to Mount Sinai. They stay down at Mount Sinai for approximately two years. And next week, we're going to be looking at the tabernacle, its furnishings, and then the different locations that the tabernacle was until it uh, just kind of mysteriously disappeared uh, during the, uh, the captivity just prior to the Babylonian captivity. And then, of course, the 12 spies. That's a very, very crucial event in, uh, in the history of the wanderings. And then finally they get to the area of Jericho and move inward. The events as they are recorded chronologically take us down through here. The, uh, the Exodus is recorded primarily in Exodus chapter 14. I want to zero in specifically right here in Numbers chapter 1 through 10. So if you would take your Bible for just a moment 
And let me, if I may, just review some of the events. And I'm looking specifically at Numbers chapter 10, starting with verse 11. It says, Now it came about in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, that the cloud was lifted over the tabernacle of testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sinai. So they've been there for almost two years, and it's time to move. And the reason uh, that they move is that God has plans for them originally, and I can't, uh, we're, we're not sure of this. Originally, I believe it was God's intention to prepare them spiritually just prior to going into the land. That is why they're in isolation down here in Sinai but because of disobedience and because of lack of faith, when they get up to Kadesh and they send the spies in, something rather dramatic happens. And if you will notice closely, when they come down to Exodus chapter uh, 13, uh, exit numbers, I'm sorry, numbers chapter 13, Verse 2, it says, Send out for yourselves men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to, your, give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. All of you know the story, I'm sure. An individual from each tribe goes, and they go for how long does it take to spy out the land? Anybody remember? 40 days, 40 days. And the interesting thing is that uh, chapter 13, verse 25, when they return from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they come back and they have a report. And all of us will probably remember this from our Sunday school days. There are 10 of them that give a report that is negative. There are two that give a report that is positive. Hey, we can do this. We can do this. And the two that give a positive report are Caleb from the tribe of Judah and Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim. And those are the two men of faith. And those, it turns out, are going to be the only two that are allowed to enter into the land from that generation, that older generation. And it's important for us to realize that when they go up to the land of uh, Canaan and spy out the land, they bring back an incredible report. And the report is found for us in chapter 14. And it says basically, verse seven, I'm looking at specifically, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. What does that phrase mean? Yes. I think it means agriculture because there would be plenty of food for cattle so they produce milk and plenty of blossoms for bees so they produce honey. 
Yes. <laughs> she got the cheat sheet. <laughs> she, she got the cheat sheet. It's a land of abundance. Uh, from what we are able to determine, and if you go to Israel now, you won't see it like this because Israel has been the geographical area that has known probably more wars and conflict than most geographical areas in the world. And every time an army would go through, one of the things they would do is just cut down all the trees so that there would be area that they could, you know, have warfare in. And apparently, at this particular time in the history of Canaan, there were just wild animals just all over the land. And one of the things he says, uh, I'm not going to let you uh, control the land immediately because if you do and wipe out all the enemy, the wild animals are just going to flourish. And so that is one of the reasons why they are not allowed to immediately control all the land which they should have uh, systematically. But uh, as we move on just a little bit, it's interesting to me that God gives them one chance. And uh, I'm looking specifically at uh, chapter 14. Let me start with reading verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. God is talking to Moses and he said, they're complaining against me. Say to them, verse 28, as I live says the Lord just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in this wilderness. And you remember I mentioned last week that one of the things that causes us a little bit of a challenge is that there is virtually no archeological evidence for the exodus from Egypt. No archeological evidence at all that Egypt, that Israel ever existed there or that they were ever in the wilderness. And the reason for that is the Egyptians do not record catastrophes. Never record catastrophes. They only record victories. Number two, Israel is a group of nomads in the wilderness. They never built anything. They just moved in the wilderness from tent to tent, location, location, location. And so the only thing that is left uh, on the part of the uh, Israelites in the, in the desert would be bones. And who knows whatever happened to those. They're buried, they're scattered, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, the reason that they wander in the land of, Is or the land of Sinai for 40 years is given to us down in verse 34, according to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear guilt. A year, even 40 years, and you shall know my opposition. So 40, years of, or 40 days of spying is going to equal 40 days of wandering in the wilderness. So finally... That whole second, that whole first generation dies off. And uh, 
then we have a situation that we come up to uh, now. We're introduced to the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, Is there something wrong with my computer, those oh, yeah. of you who are computer geeks, that would cause it to do that? Every it happens every it happens at quarter to ten every <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> All right, Joshua was divided into two sections. Uh, first of all, the conquest of the land in the first 12 chapters, and then the division of the land in the next 12 chapters. And so, by the way, that should read uh, Joshua 24. Uh, so the conquest of the land is going to look a little bit like this. And it's important for us to realize that uh, the conquest of the land is going to involve splitting the land in half, and then take this, taking the southern portion and then taking the northern portion. The question that might be asked is this. Just exactly how is God going to do that through the children of Israel? First of all, he's going to split the land and he's going to take the two central cities and destroy those. Two key cities, Josh, or Jericho and Ai. Then in the southern campaign, it's going to be a series of battles. And then in the northern campaign, it's going to be one major battle. And so how long does all of this take? I want to suggest to you that the conquest takes seven years. How do we know it takes seven years? After they have wandered in the land of Sinai for 40 years, seven years it takes to do the conquest. The way we know this is primarily through something that is found in uh, Joshua chapter 14. If you want to, you can turn there. Joshua chapter 14, and it is a testimony on the part of Caleb. Caleb, remember, is one of the spies. He came back with a good report he is given one of the first inheritances. And when you look at chapter 14, starting with verse 6, Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And it goes on, verse 7. Caleb says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh to spy out the land. I brought back a good report. Verse 8, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord God fully. Verse 10, And now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years. So what you've got is Caleb is 40 years old, when he goes to spy out the land. 40 plus 38 years of wandering plus seven years of the conquest, at the time of his inheritance, he is 85 years old. That's the reason we know the 
the conquest takes approximately seven years. And uh, the interesting thing that we discover about the conquest is that what it was not a complete and total conquest. In fact, if you will look back at Joshua chapter 13 and verse 1, about the time they're starting to divide the land, Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years and very much of the land remains to be possessed. And uh, what they did is just basically go through and break the backbones of the Canaanite resistance and then it was going to be up to the individual tribes to go through and do what you might call the mop-up operation, where they would systematically begin to take the various cities. Uh, let me move on. The strategy is going to be, first of all, cut the land in half, then take the southern portion, then take the northern portion. There are a lot of cities that are not immediately conquered in this early campaign of seven years. But what we do discover is that in the southern campaign, they start out and the, a treaty has been made with Gibeon, and then they take these key cities in the south. After they take these key cities in the south, and there's, there's, of course, the, uh, the, the green represents the central campaign. The red represents the southern campaign. Uh, how long all of this takes, uh, we're really not told. The next thing that happens, and here's something I want to uh, just kind of touch base on, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, Jericho is way down here below sea level, approximately 700 feet below sea level. When they make that sneak attack, when all these southern uh, cities band together and they're going to go against Gibeon because they made a treaty, the people from Gibeon alert Joshua. Joshua, in a surprise move, in one night, hikes from Jericho all the way up to Beth Haran, and that's where the battle kind of takes place. Now, the thing I want to distress a little bit, and uh, uh, the reason I have put this geographical uh, uh, relief map up there is the distance from Jericho up to the top of the summit, and then Beth Ron is approximately 20 miles. They traveled that 20-mile distance in the dark, one of the interesting things that you discover when you do go to Israel is that from Jericho up the mountain, there's really no easy trail. There's no easy path. It is canyons, it is rift valleys, and everything going up. Joshua does this at night. There is a 37-foot 3,700 foot elevation gain from Jericho up to that point, which is done at night, which is, you know, kind of, that's, that's pretty rough for any army. 
And then when they get there, surprise attack, first thing in the morning, <clears throat> they're not necessarily refreshed or anything like that, but they go ahead and surprise attack them and, of course, wipe them out. But here is something, and this is just a little bit of a geography uh, lesson from Jericho up to Gibeon, where the Beth Haran uh, situation is, and then they attack these various cities down below. But the thing I want to uh, thing I want to talk about for just a moment is something that is not necessarily in the Bible, but is this kind of an archaeological. Uh, phenomenon. The city of Jericho, the name in the New Testament specifically is City of the Palms. But the word Jericho comes from an ancient Arabic word, Yerik, which essentially means the city of the moon. Over on this side of the mountains, there is a little village called Beth Shemesh, which means house of the sun. Uh, if you remember your history in the book of Joshua, during the southern campaign, two natural phenomenons took place. You remember what those two natural phenomenons are? Hailstorm a massive hailstorm, and the sun stands still. Now, one of the things that uh, we have discovered with regard to uh, the study of the Bible is that you have Yahweh, the true God, and then you look at all of the Canaanite deities, the Babylonian deities, all of these are representative of a worship of something on the earth. It's interesting to me that Romans chapter 1 talks about how they worship the earth rather than the creator of the earth, worship the creature, the creation rather than the, the creator. Every, it, it's very interesting and, and usually when God does an attack on the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, it all focuses on one of their gods of nature. And in this particular case, Beth Shemesh, a small little village where they worship the sun and probably representative of many of these other little cities over here on the west side of the mountains. God says, all right, you worship the sun, let me show you how I am greater than your God of the sun. Uh, it's interesting to me that studies have been done and probably many of you are aware that every single one of the 10 plagues in Egypt orchestrated by Moses and God are something directly related to one of the gods of Egypt. And all of these different gods are representative in a variety of ways. And I know this chart is rather detailed, but down the middle column, you see the different names of all the different, they had a god for everything. 
everything in nature. Uh, this study is called a polemic. And I know that word is not in the Bible, but the thing that's interesting is that there is this polemic against the gods of the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and what God is doing in every single case is he is directly attacking their God and showing how he is superior to these various gods in uh, these various locales. So that is called a polemic. Now, the interesting thing is, and this is just a suggestion, uh, we really don't know, the, uh, when they crossed over the Jordan, they're on the other side of the Jordan, they cross over the Jordan back in Joshua chapter uh, 3 and 4. It is interesting that they cross over the Jordan when it is at the spring runoff time, when the water is highest. Now, this could be a miracle of timing. And uh, in the 20, early 20th century, there were two occasions where there was a massive landslide upriver from the Jordan that blocked the whole entire Jordan River and it took almost 24 hours for that landslide to be cleared so that the Jordan River could flow again. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's too much of a coincidence. Well, believe it or not, every natural phenomenon is a coincidence, but I really strongly believe that there is a timing factor and God knows when all of this is gonna happen. So there could be a timing issue. Another interesting thing is the walls of Jericho fell down flat the Rift Valley, right down through from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Jordan River, is known for its earthquakes. And uh, they don't happen frequently. We had one at Salt Lake here a couple of years ago. We had, I, last one I remember is during my high school days, back in about 1970, when did I grow up? Oh, 60s. <laughs> Boy, takes me way back. But anyway, the interesting thing is the timing of earthquakes is orchestrated by God. And it could well be, and I'm not saying this is uh, the exact, but it could well be that as they're marching around the city of Jericho, as soon as they shout, God causes an earthquake and the, everything falls down. It could be either way, just happens or a net, God uses nature. I'm inclined to think that God takes nature. If you're going to worship nature, I'm going to turn it on you. And that's exactly what he does in all of these events. Now, let's move on just a little bit further. The interesting thing is in the north, all these Canaanite cities meet at Maram, and that's where Joshua and his armies defeat all of them. They gather together, and uh, as Joshua is there, they're defeated. So that's the seven years of conquest. Now comes the seven, or the situation where Joshua disperses the land. And starting with chapter 13, as I mentioned in the book of Joshua, the land is dispersed. These are all of the various cities in the land 
of Canaan that are eventually conquered. These are the ones that they can conquer. Do they conquer all of them at this time? No. But they're supposed to over a period of time. Not immediately, but they're supposed to break the backbone of the Canaanites. These boundaries that you see up here are the boundaries of the individual tribes. Now, I don't know if this is significant or not, but one of the things I would like to just show you is that the boundaries are given to the individual tribes. There are a total of 12 tribes, all based on the four women who gave children to Jacob. The first is Leah. Leah produces a total of six sons. Her handmaid produces two. Billa, the handmaid of Rachel, produces two. And then finally at the very end, Rachel, the favorite wife of Jacob, produces two. Now, as we move on just a little bit, the sequence of these women giving birth is something like this. Uh, each of them are representative of a certain kind of a symbol. And the thing I want you to notice is that the firstborn, Reuben, does not get the inheritance. I find it extremely interesting that in the sequence of the book of Genesis, the natural way of inheritance, the natural way of being the, the firstborn son and receiving the double portion is bypassed by God in every single case. When it comes to the sons of Jacob, the firstborn is bypassed and the fourthborn is the one through whom the line goes, the messianic line or the royal line. But the thing I want you to notice specifically, and I find this interesting, is the way the tribes are divided up and the way the sons are dispersed. Look at that closely and see if you see any kind of a scheme or a non-scheme for the way the tribes are distributed throughout the land. Maybe it's just me, I don't know. But I think there's something kind of interesting taking place here. Does anybody see any kind of a sequence or a scheme or anything? Well, Judah gets the biggest amount, and then Manasseh is the next. All right, that's, that's, that's a crucial observation. Why would Judah have the most land, you think? He's the fourth born, but like you say, Reuben was skipped over, and Simeon and Levi are the two sons who killed 
everybody at Shechem. All right, that, that is one of the reasons, but why did Judah get the most land? Um, what are they gonna produce? The They're the royal line. They're the royal line. Uh, there's something else here. Keep looking, keep looking. Yes. Well, Levi has no land because they're the priesthood. And so Joseph being two tribes, it still equals out that there are 12 tribes. That's all right. All of these observations are excellent. But if you don't mind, I'm going to keep fly fishing for a moment and see if you see well, something. Well, Go like ahead, David. Real estate is How's that? The prime real estate is Manasseh and Ephraim. I mean, that's where the, the breadbasket of... That's right. He, he, he gets a lot. He gets a lot of land. Whether it's the choicest land or not, we're not absolutely certain, but he gets a lot of land. Plus, Jerusalem's in the borders there. How's it? that now? Jerusalem is in the borders of Ephraim? Like... Yes, it's right, right, yes. And eventually, Simeon is kind of swallowed up by Judah. That's right. Simeon really doesn't exist after a while. Uh, okay, let me, uh, because time is fleeting, I, I'm going to give you, this is just me, all right? It may not be that significant, but seeing how I'm the one that thought of it, I think it's significant. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Let me see the judge of that. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that by and large, all of the sons of Leah are not clustered together. And all of the sons of Rachel and Bill, they're not clustered together. They're kind of, all of the different sons are dispersed. Now there are some that join, uh, that are joined together as far as uh, geography are concerned. But by and large, they're just kind of, all of the sons are dispersed between all of that land. Does everybody see that? There are a couple of exceptions. For example, Zebulun in Issachar. Uh, there are, uh, say, like Gad and Asher. If you notice where Gad is, and then you notice where Asher is. Very much distance. Could there possibly be the potential for these various sons of these individual women to get together and possibly say, all right, hey, we're part of this inheritance. We're part of, we're part of this bloodline. We're part of this bloodline. Does ever, it, it may not be significant, but I just find it interesting that they're, they're spread all over. There's no clustering of any one unit, family unit together. Go ahead. So when the kingdom is divided with what's called Israel in the north and Judah in the south, where's the dividing line? The dividing line would be just right, right where Dan is across there and then south of Benjamin, everything down, down this direction. Tribes in the south, and that's why they're called the ten lost tribes in the north. Well, uh, we don't call them the ten, ten lost tribes, but it's the ten tribes in the north. 
But isn't it interesting that you got Reuben, the firstborn, he didn't get a whole lot of land. And he seems to be almost as isolated, far away. Why would that be? Is there something in his past? Yes, I think that's true. All right, now that that's just an observation. All of the observations that you guys have made are good. I think, in addition to everything, they're they they're just spread out. They're just spread out. All right. Now let's uh, let's go to something in addition. One of the interesting features that God made in the distribution of the land is he made what is called the cities of refuge. If a person accidentally or unintentionally kills a person, they can flee to one of these cities in the land of Canaan, which is eventually going to become the land of Israel. And there are, they are positioned so that it's not that far for anybody to get to for protection. Another way to see this is uh, through this particular slide right here. They're positioned in such a way to where they can get to there, get to each of these cities and be protected. Another interesting thing is that there are the Levitical cities. There are a total of 48 Levitical cities spread throughout the land of Israel. These are where the Levites lived. These are the priests. These are the, uh, I guess, the, the teachers of the law. And each of them would have a different responsibility. Look, if you will, at Manasseh. He's got a lot of land, but he's got the fewest Levitical cities. Apparently, God knew that the population in these various areas would not be as explosive as some other areas. Notice the area around the Sea of Galilee. Notice the area down here around the area of Judah. As you look a little bit further in all of this, one of the things that you discover is that these cities are dispersed all over so that the teach the teaching of the law and the teaching of the things of God can be easily done in all of these areas. Another thing that's important is this is the distribution of the various Levitical cities. And notice how some tribes have very few, other tribes have a very small amount. Why, I do not know probably based on population. And God knew this. Now, what is it that God promised? What did God promise these people? I would like for you to turn your attention to Numbers chapter 13. We've been there already today. But Numbers chapter 13, specifically, I would like for you to notice these verses that I have highlighted. Chapter 13, 25 and following. When they returned from spying out the land, at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron 
And to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And in verse 27, they said, we went through all the land. We saw that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's the proof. Here's the fruit. Verse 28, uh, the people that live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified. They're very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak. Apparently, some pretty hefty looking boys. As we move on a little bit further, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the thing I want you to notice in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and this to me is absolutely vital. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 10 and 11. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, notice closely, which you did not build, and homes full of all good things, which you did not fill, and hewn sisters, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Now, what is he promising them? He's promising them intact cities, intact cities. It's going to be as if at your house right now, you moved out, everything was left, and someone else moved in and just took over. This to me is a very, very crucial verse when it comes to the promise of God. The assumption, the assumption on the part of modern day archeologists is that when Israel moved into the land, they destroyed everything. They destroyed all the people, they killed all the people, they destroyed all the cities, and they had to start from scratch. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. Look, if you will, at the next thing that he tells us in the next series of verses. I'm looking at Joshua chapter six. Joshua chapter six. When they move in and Jericho is destroyed, notice if you will, verse 24, and they burn the city with fire and all that was in it. The only thing they kept is silver, gold, and precious metals. When you look at chapter uh, 8, verse 18 and 19, one of the things that you discover, and the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out your javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it to you, verse 19, end of the verse, they set the city on fire. A crucial verse in chapter 11. Chapter 11, specifically, notice verse 10. Joshua turned it, now this is the northern campaign. Joshua turned uh, back at the time and captured Hatzor, 
and struck its king with the sword, for Hatzor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms, and they struck everyone who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hatzor with fire. Now look closely at verse 13, a crucial, crucial verse. However, Israel did not burn any city that stood on its mound or tell, except Hatzor alone, which Joshua burned. How many total cities were burned in the process of the captivity? There were only three. Jericho, Ai, Hatzor. Those are the only cities that were destroyed. Now, the interesting thing is when people, archaeologists, who are skeptical about the Bible, begin to do archaeological studies in the land of Israel, they expect a burn layer of ash at the time Israel came into the land of promise. But that's not what happened. God gave them intact cities so they could not start from scratch, but just start up where everything was left. Does that make sense? Does that Now, here's something very important for us to realize, and that is during the time of the judges, right through here, there were several Egyptian kings, and I do not have uh, Merenepta up there, but he was an Egyptian pharaoh during this time, as well as Ramses. In archaeological evidence, there has been a, a record of the fact that these people came through the land of Canaan after Israel was already there and they did destroy some cities. And so that is why they are saying, well, the Exodus really didn't take place until this period of time right here. And we say, hold it. You can't say that because there were just three cities in all of Israel that were destroyed during the time of the Exodus. And so we suggest that the Pharaoh of the Exodus is Amenhotep II. We also suggest that that validates the numbering system that is found in the Bible, that it, it, there is 480 years between the time of Solomon starting the temple and the Exodus, which immediately pans out. <clears throat> Any comments or questions? I know I have, I have really moved fast today. Uh, any comments or questions? Everybody under, that's why we believe you've got to trust the numbers of the Bible. If you don't trust the numbers of the Bible and then see what evidence there is in the Bible for these dates, you immediately are suspicion, suspicious of all numbers in the Bible. And if you're suspicious, or your suspicion uh, about the numbers of the Bible begins to grow, you're gonna throw out Genesis chapter one, you're gonna throw out the book of the Revelation. That's just the way it is. Comments or questions? You're spellbound, yes. What's the significance of the 480 years? 
That is the uh, that is the date that is given in First First uh, Kings chapter six verse one. When Solomon begins to build the temple, it says it's four hundred and eighty years since the Exodus. The liberals come and they say, well, the period of the Josh of the conquest and the period of judges only lasted a little over 200 years. We say, no, it can't. It's got to be much longer than that. In fact, they even reduce it to 120 years. We say, no, the period of, the, of Joshua and judges probably lasts over 350 years. And obviously, if you read the book of Judges and you see all of the conflicts that take place through the book of Judges, there are cities destroyed. The, the outside people come in, destroy the cities of, uh, of Israel, and one of the things that happens is God raises up the judges so that they can be deliverers. All right. Hey, thank you. Thank you.